132. This was uh, what was left of it. Emma Lou Gibbs stands at the end of Harriet's Bluff Road in front of a chain link fence. She looks beyond the steel where overgrown pavement disappears into a forest. The buzz of cicadas carries through the hot Georgia summer air, and overhead, thunder rumbles behind swollen clouds that are minutes from a sticky rain. Yes, that's what I remember the good time. Beyond the fence and the trees is what's left of Thiokol Chemical Corporation, the munitions plant that Emma Lou and her friends and family worked at years ago. It was real hot. Yeah. <laughs> we had to suit up, gas masks and all that. Emma Lou, now 78, started working at the plant more than 50 years ago. She was one of the approximately 60 women who aided in the production of the trip flare, devices used by American soldiers in the Vietnam War. Like her, most of the workers on that line were African-American women striving to lift themselves and their families out of poverty. Just like a one big happy family. You work six hours. Then come up, you had to change house right over there. Take a shower, put on our clothes, go home, and party the rest of the day. <laughs> when Emma Lou talks about her time at Thiokol, she tries to remember the happy moments, when her and other assembly line workers would chat and sing, when they'd picnic outside line, and walk along the waters and marshland Jesus abutting the, the property. Some of them go down there to the, the area we the water at, down by there. We had a picnic area back there. Every night and then they throw a little picnic. They built the building back there for a little picnic. But some of them would go down to the waterfront down there to eat. I didn't go down there. Because sometimes they had to get us be down there. <laughs> Creeks and tributaries run along the plant's east side like blue veins. That deep water access to the intracoastal waterway is why Thiokol Chemical Corporation decided to locate in Woodbine in the first place. But workers haven't been down to the waterfront in more than a decade. The alligators sit unbothered, and the singing no longer rings in any of the halls on this land. This is the first time I've been out here in 16 years. <laughs> That's what I told my life, I was gonna never come back. <laughs> The plant stopped operating in 2012. Most people find no reason to come out here on this isolated stretch of road anymore. Because like Emma Lou, when they're standing outside the former Thiokol plant, they can't help but recall the day that changed their lives forever. It's 1969. Radical change defines a tumultuous United States of America. Black Americans were celebrating the hard-won passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. And the South had entered a period of integration. But the struggle for civil rights continued, and conflicts in the name of justice 
raged on both at home and abroad. A year prior, the nation saw the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. Then, two months later, Robert F. Kennedy, the attorney general and younger brother to 35th President JFK. These were the deaths of people who fought for the poor and disenfranchised. They were also voices of a growing anti-war movement. By then, the Vietnam War had killed tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers and hundreds of thousands of civilians. At the same time, Americans donned peace symbols and sang and danced to rock and roll. They tried to make sense of the turbulence, find stability in a volatile time, and fight for the equality that was promised. As the nation churned, the tiny town of Woodbine chugged along. The rural city sits on the southeastern tip of Georgia. 20 miles south is the Florida-Georgia line, and about 20 miles due east is Cumberland Island. In the midst of all this social and political upheaval, the people in and around the town found kinship. If you see no color, everybody's, you know, was together. Did you like sisters and brothers out there? But it really hasn't changed too much, you know, because, uh, even when they uh, integrated the schools, I had four kids to go out there, and uh, at least three now. And they made friends with everybody. Just like I go to the store, they don't want to go to the store with me because they say everybody knew me and I'm talking to everybody. <laughs> Camden is one of Georgia's eight original counties. And like the site of most early American colonies, it's layered with buried history. Up until the Civil War, the area was sustained by a number of rice, cotton, and corn plantations along the water. The city of Woodbine was itself the site of the Woodbine Plantation. Going into the 20th century, the area's lush forests lent itself to a booming pulp papermaking industry. The U.S. 17 highway finally reached Woodbine, and the town began to bustle with life. By the late 1960s, the town was a racially mixed community. Growing up here, it's like people knew that there was a racial divide. They knew, okay? And, but the problem with me was, I didn't know. Janie Everett was in high school at the time, and although Janie herself would never set foot in Thiokol as a worker, her mother would, along with many of the adults around her. So she grew up hearing the word Thiokol, a name that would come to define Woodbine. So it was kind of a mixed community, the Grovers and everybody, but, you know, I didn't see them. It's like I was colorblind. If I wanted something, I would go and, 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 you know, pick up the trash or whatever. She'd give me what I want. And I would just go all over everywhere. If I got tired, I'd just go on Mr. Proctor's porch and go to sleep. <laughs> She'd fall asleep on her white neighbor's porch. I didn't have sense enough to know. I was scared of snakes. 
that a snake could crawl up on the open porch, okay? I didn't know that. She leaned on the community that made her the steely, determined person she is today. It wasn't until she got older did she realize the circumstances of the time. You didn't find out about this until you got older. It's just like with me, I never knew that I was poor because I got to eat every day. I had clothes. And I said, how do y'all define poor? I mean, if you could make, uh, if, if you grew collard greens, you could trade them for a canned good from the store. You know, stuff like that. And and pe- when people didn't have money, they ran a, a, a tick, right? Mm-hmm. If they couldn't pay that tick when they got their check, right, they would go to their sweet potato bank, get the sweet potatoes, and give that to the store, or they would make sweet potato pies. It was a barter system. Or if you could make cakes, or if you could play piano, you could play the piano for somebody's wedding in exchange for a bill that you owed. Or if, or if you wanted something and you could make dresses really good, they'd hire you to do that. While more women were beginning to enter the workforce in the late 60s to early 70s, good-paying jobs were scarce. Most work was in domestic and agricultural settings. The women around Woodbine mainly found jobs as field hands or hotel housekeepers, or at seafood plants up north in Brunswick. We made more money there than we was at the shrimp factory because we worked by piecework, and I wasn't that good on braiding shrimp, so I hardly ever made my quarter. That's Hattie Fogel, another Camden resident who worked at the Thiokol plant. When I worked at the CPAC, I think I'm making a dollar and 15 cents an hour. Emma Lou, Hattie, and other women would travel the 30 miles up to the King Shrimp Company in Brunswick. And some days, there wouldn't even be any shrimp to pack, and they turned back with no income for the day. Their husbands actually were working themselves into an early grade. But in 1969, things started to change for the community. Thiokol had won a contract with the U.S. government to assemble 754,000 trip flares for the Vietnam War. The company, which previously only hired men to produce other types of munition, announced they needed about 55 women to make the intricate trip flares. People celebrated. But after 1964, (laughs) the women went to work. They formed that two-income family and things improved. So they transformed this region from domestic and plantation to industry. That was good money during that time. I bought me a car and I bought me a trailer. And then I took care of my kids. The pay upgrade was life-changing for most of the women's families. In 1971, the minimum wage was 160 an hour, at Thiokol, you started at 185 and could work your way up to 225, and the work was stable. So I was thrilled to get a job where I just got paid by the hour coming to work and doing, you know, what I did. Hattie traded in braiding shrimp for sticking pins into trip flares. It was more dangerous work, but had a steady income. But she, like others, didn't know just how dangerous it actually was. I had just finished high school and I'd had a baby out of a wedlock and I went to work at Thiokol. And I was able to buy my own mobile home at that time, you know, 
working so I could take care and give her a better life. If you're born poor, you're born a woman, black, in the South, that's four strikes. You know, these people, they took where they were as just a circumstance. They didn't accept it as a destination. They just kept moving on. And if you live during the time to see the women employed, improving their family life, they bought homes, they bought cars, they sent their kids to college. I didn't have to look beyond the edges of the community to find a hero or somebody's life to, em to emulate. A lot of the people that I worked with were older women. They put their heart in their job to make sure they were doing top work. They, they took pride in what they did. And though the work was ultimately dangerous, the work was hope for the community. The women sat alongside the men as they fed the assembly line. Black and white workers shared the same space. Together, these people made history as Thiokol became a fully integrated co-ed workplace. And the women, they sang. On February 3rd, 1971, a little after 10 a.m., Hattie Fogel had just got home after working the graveyard shift. My mom was up cooking breakfast and I got my little girl, which was like 13 months old, and I fixed her breakfast and I fed her. And I sat down on the side of the bed to take off my shoes and stuff to get ready to lay down. And my mom's house shook. And I, we were at a table, like in the lunchroom area, and goofing off. And when I got ready to stand up, and I stood up, the, 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 the ground, it swayed. And you could look at the windows. We had these narrow windows. And you, and then you, there was another shimmy. So, you know, later on they announced that call had blown up. The day of the explosion, McKnight came by, he was the supervisor. And I asked him, I said, well, what happened? He said, 132 blew up and everybody's dead. I said, oh no, everybody can't be dead. He said, oh yes, they are. On that Wednesday morning, Emma Lou wasn't in M132, the building where the trip flares were being manufactured. But some of her relatives were along with about 60 other women. One of the flares had lit up on the assembly line. The flames licked down the conveyor belt, down the production line. Then it reached the cure room and a storage room where eight tons of illuminants, candles, ignition pellets, and other chemical materials were stored. This fire was not like the ones that came before it, but no one knew it wasn't extinguished. Those that fled stayed right by the building. Two minor explosions went on. Lou's nephew, who was a supervisor at M132, knocked two relatives down and told them to lay flat. Don't move. The final detonation shook the earth for miles beyond, and the factory clocks froze at 10.53 a.m.
Coming up this season of Tripwire. It was a, a funny, funny, funny feeling day. It just wasn't right. It didn't feel right that morning. I could hear the fire coming. You had a voice that they that the first explosion blew me out of there. We could hear the explosion in Brunswick, Georgia. We heard this loud, loud blast. Didn't know what it was, but we heard it. That many people to see dead at one time, you were not programmed for that. I immediately thought I was back in Vietnam. The whole world kind of changed for me after that. The hand that she had on her children was not there anymore to help them. It'll never, never, I will never forget it. If I live 300 years, I won't forget it. You know, you can live through something and not realize while you're living through it that you are writing history. When I talk to them, I tell them, you know, you have a story to tell that only you can tell. Nobody can tell your story. The Tripwire Podcast is a production of the Savannah Morning News. Executive producers are Ann and Pat Longstreth, Zach Dennis, and me, Nancy Guan. Music for the show was written and performed by Andrew Sovine. Learn more about his work at andrewsovine.com. Special thanks goes to Janie Everett and the Thiokol Memorial Project. Learn more about the project at thiokolmemorial.org.